Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and there is a non-denominational retreat weekend at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida. This will be a time of support and renewal for parents and grandparents on the journey of parental alienation, standing strong and resilient, paving the way for good health and a great future. This will take place April 22nd through the 24th at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida, and I will have all the information in the podcast notes. Right now, I have a brand new guest. His name is Ben Tomes. He is an award-winning wrestling and mixed martial arts coach. He's an author of the Confessions of the Unmedicated Mind series, which can be found on Amazon, and an alienated parent. At age 49, he recently made the second oldest debut MMA fight ever as part of an upcoming book and documentary about parental alienation titled Proxy War. And I totally welcome you, Ben Tomes, to my podcast. How are you? And how did all this happen to you? (laughs) Well, it's been a ride. (laughs) Um, Probably something most alienated parents can relate to that it's a comes a story that's hard to tell in short time. It's not really one that's got like a clear starting point and a clear end point other than when the alienation started, but uh, um, kind of found my way through mixed martial arts years ago to um, uh, get a path to um, kind of cope and deal with uh, problematic marriage and everything else, but it's turned into an awful lot more. And um, uh, I guess I, with the fight, it was, um, it really kind of spawned out of a couple things. Um, one, um, I coach fighters that are active in the UFC. I've got two that are active roster UFC fighters, and it takes me all over the place. So I'm out in Las Vegas and Texas and fly all over the country to do this. And um, I was watching fights from my home in Wisconsin, and uh, there was a fight between Andre Ewell and Chris Gutierrez. And during the broadcast, this would have been in February of 2021, um, John Onik, the announcer, had mentioned um, during the broadcast that both guys bonded in the pre-fight stuff, realizing they were both alienated parents. And um, so that kind of triggered thoughts for me. I've, I've trained fighters for a long time, but um, had never actually fought. I got into it a little bit later, but I had been toying with the idea of trying to take a fight and it just kind of hit me. I had already been alienated from my daughter um, for, I'd say, probably about five, six months at that point. And the court side of it was already a joke. So I thought about it and I'm like, you know, I'm going to have to fight here, but this fight's not fair. If I fought in a cage, even if I'm 49 and the opponent is more experienced in terms of competing, that fight's actually fair. And it became very alluring because the battle in the courtroom was decided before it even got started. Exactly. I very much made the decision to do this and realized if you're going to uh, strip me of my rights as a parent um, and just trample all over me because systemically that's how they're designed, um, then I was going to wage a whole different fight and actually fight. So um, I thought it would make some news and then it made a little bit more than I thought it would. But um, it ended up being the second oldest debut fight in the history of the sport. Um, no one's beating the first one. That guy took a debut fight at 70. That one's going to last. No one's touching that one. But uh, 
at almost 50, I was like, you know, I can do this. I'm in good enough shape. I can do this. Um, I can get some attention for things and then kind of rally around a project with this. And that's when the talk of the book and the documentary came up and everything just kind of slowly came together. So it was a, a brutal process. I had to, uh, I lost opponents a couple times and I, my initial thought was let's, let's get an opponent and try to find one that's also alienated and make it a father's fight for father's rights or a father's fight for parents' rights. Um, and that's what I found. I had an opponent who was alienated from his kids and I knew him. He had posted online. Um, he got in and in this process, um, he ended up being somewhat reunited with his three daughters and then mm -hmm. bailed on the fight. So I was still ready to go. I had to end up taking an opponent who was not alienated just so that we could follow through. But um, I think the documentary is going to be very compelling. It follows me as I train. And then um, there's going to be an awful lot of interviews of people who are impacted by this that I think will be of real interest to other people. That's excellent. That sounds so interesting. So is this being recorded now or will it? Okay, it is. Yeah, so I had a, a deal initially, kind of um, handshake deal with a production company out in Milwaukee um, that had done some bigger projects, and they were all in on it until they got assigned to go film um, Karate Kid season four in Atlanta. So they kind of put filming on halt, and then they got picked up to do other projects, and so they just kind of let it go. But we picked up... Um, a, blue, a new deal with Blueprint Media. Uh, they've done a lot of other stuff locally, but um, I think with my connections through the UFC and ESPN and a few other places, I think we're going to get um, a, a look that other people might not. You know, when you start involving professional athletes who are um, some of them becoming somewhat street recognizable, um, I think you get a project that's got a little bit more chance to make a lot of headway. And I felt like between that and a really long career spent teaching and coaching in the inner cities of Milwaukee and West Palm Beach, Florida, um, that it was going to be compelling because just like a lot of other alienated parents, you tend to get attacked on what you're good at and what your uh, alienating ex-spouse is not good at. And for me, that was parenting. I mean, I've been a surrogate parent to um, hundreds of boys, um, and girls too, but predominantly boys who came up through high school wrestling in inner city schools um, or were my students and just really struggled to, um, you know, not having a father figure at home. And so this was very much uh, consistent with an attack on the things that make me who I am. Um, like if you were to talk to people who know me um, in Milwaukee, there's a joke in our, the gym that I'm at because it's a pretty urban gym and the joke is that, uh, uh, I've been the whole hood's dad over the years. So, um, but it, there's some truth to that. I've been around for a while and I've done a lot for people and had, you know, uh, some former athletes of mine have to come stay here for a while. And, you know, I've always kind of been regarded that way. And then to be attacked on a parenting front was um, ironic, really brutal, but also something that I have enough of a name, just enough, not huge, but I have enough of a name that I felt like if I fought back, it would make a little bit more news than somebody who um, might, you know, also not necessarily be financially blessed, but um, I'm in a career where I actually get a chance to see some people who are in, um, in the news consistently, and I, I felt like I had the connections to get this out there. That is really important. I mean, this is really good that you do have these connections to bring forth this corruption that's going on.
in the family courtrooms that perpetuate parental alienation? I think it, it really is. And I know for me, I'm such a detailed note taker and um, have a very strong memory. I've published books that were on my childhood. So I'm revisiting things and uh, things I've experienced a lot. And, um, you know, I was a longtime social studies and history teacher, and I know how to kind of gather all the pertinent information and get it in order. The alienation side of it is really tough, though, because this story jumps around. I would argue that the alienation process with me started actually probably before I even had um, uh, our daughter, um, before she was born. Um, I feel like the groundwork was laid um, probably in the dating process and how I was selected um, and targeted um, by somebody who is very much like a chameleon and could just adapt, um, kind of mirror behaviors, get in with you, and then um, once they feel like you're hooked, can kind of show who they are and then start digging in and chipping away at what you are. And um, I didn't know that that was a consistent pattern. I, I knew that there were patterns. I recognized some really crazy behaviors while we were married. And there are some terrible things that kind of stood out that I go back and I look at, but I didn't have a context for it. And then when the alienation started, I actually got the context and started to realize as you watch all this unfold and you start learning about what so many people don't know about. And you realize, holy cow, this, is, this, is, this wasn't an accident. This was probably part of a very formal plan. And when you start looking at all the traits and all the tendencies and everything else that comes up um, through this, I couldn't believe how consistent everybody's stories were. Um, right down to some of their backgrounds and um, things that, um, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily expected to be as common traits from something like this, but they're very much, it's undeniable. When you start to go through and you see everybody's stories and they're so consistent, there's no way that it's not a thing. And I think the research is starting to really support that there are um, tendencies, traits, things that make certain people vulnerable to this. I think if you're an empath, you start to learn that you are highly susceptible to ending up being intercepted by somebody with uh, hardcore narcissism or borderline personality disorder. And I watched this all play out and um, it's crazy now to understand. I mean, it's nice to understand what happened to a degree because there's zero secret on that. I can follow the bouncing ball and know exactly what the goals were. I know where all this came from. And just like a lot of cases, there's family connections because you can't do this on your own. And um, I came from a highly dysfunctional family. I wouldn't call it a terrible upbringing, but it was definitely weird and it was not standard. And there was conflict with my family, largely because for better or worse, we handled it when it came up. That was not the case with the family that I married into who made it a very decided choice to um, hide their trauma and pretend like there were no problems. And that's where a lot of this, I think, really developed um, was in the fact that this is a family that covered up um, several different problems, including alcoholism and sexual abuse, and made sure that nobody ever knew about it. And in fact, um, that's the powder keg that we sit on here today. You know, and I am an empath by nature. I have sympathy for anybody who goes through uh, that type of trauma, but there is a line. And when you become somebody's sort of emotional masturbation, that they pick on you and do things to go and get at you in order to ease their own soul for what their family never took care of. 
And when you start to see that, you can't unsee it. Um, and it's blatantly connected, um, I think, with the alienation, because I think people start to do what their families never did for them. And that's actually, you know, put protection up, but it's totally misplaced. It's misguided. And it's just basically compensating for what, you know, the family didn't do. And in this case, um, my ex's family knew of the abuse and allowed it, and they kept going around the abuser and didn't let anybody know. So three kids ended up having their, you know, being violated, and it was avoidable after the first one. So, you know, that got buried and stuffed, and you start to realize, you know, like in my case, they had a, a pattern of hiding it, like from the father. He didn't know what his father actually had done. And so mom did, and she protected him, and she didn't ever go and address it. And I think that really led to this manifestation as an adult of untreated trauma, which then um, spirals out of control. And, you know, again, I have empathy for anybody who's been through that. But when you become their punching bag and how they deal with it, and they stay unwilling to recognize that or recognize it in spurts and lucid moments, and then come back later and go, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. I didn't admit to that. You know, I, I guess it made me realize, you know, the only way to fight back is to basically just dump truth and to be very, I wouldn't say necessarily spiteful, um, although you could say I'm not happy with these folks. So I have no problem with it. But I also know the only way to get a reaction or to get change from people who have narcissism is to hit them in their bottom line, which is how they look. And if you can hit them how they look or make them look bad um, and do so accurately, um, you can find some success. And I think that's a, a bit of wisdom that I think could be applied and widened out on the entire thing. It's one thing to expose the person who has basically abused you and caused the alienation. But when you can go and expose a whole system, and I think you do it the exact same way, these folks don't want people to know that they did nothing and that they stared at abuse and that they just kind of tolerated it and said, well, you know, that was out of my scope of understanding. So no big deal. It's all right. Maybe you guys will recover. I just couldn't believe how flippant everybody was. And it's also once you see those narcissistic patterns, um, they don't apply everywhere, but they definitely do to the family court system. I would argue that most divorce attorneys, most judges are probably all, probably narcissistic to their core, or at least to some degree have traits and behaviors that would be similar. And I felt like, you know what? No, let's flip this whole thing on its ear. I can do this fight, make it for publicity purposes, but it's a big story. Um, and mine in particular, um, was a little bit bigger because I'm also one of the first people to ever compete after a spinal fusion. And so mm -hmm. I kind of knew that that was something that insulated it just a bit because um, it gave it one more element, I think, of intrigue to do it at age almost 50 um, and then to do it after having a three vertebrae lumbar fusion um, in 2009 that was supposed to prevent me from being physically active. I felt like, you know what, this story if I'm ever gonna unload this and I could go and unload it and have it be a testament to how hard I actually fought um, despite the loss and not being able to see my daughter, there's absolutely no denying that I fought for my daughter. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I definitely, it takes a lot to go through. Um, I don't know if you're not familiar with mixed martial arts, it's cage fighting. Uh, my fight was not in the USC, that's the big leagues of fighting. It was on a more local promotion, but um, it was in front of 2,000 people. It gave me an audience. 
it was um, covered by TV. Um, they had a professional broadcast of the event done and then released on Madison Public Television. And so it started to get my word and my truth out there a little bit. Um, we held back a touch just because we wanted to go and have a little bit more of a shock factor once the documentary gets close and the book gets close. But it's a story I don't think it would matter if you know how it ends or doesn't end. Um, I think to go and to do this and to kind of lay the whole court fight right alongside getting ready for an actual fight in a cage where they lock the door and there's a referee in there and you and your opponent and that's it. And, you know, I, I felt like it was enough like the court system. If there was one big difference, it's that in an MMA fight, it's fair. Like you actually have some say in the outcome. And my outcome was that I lost. Um, but uh, I could never take the experience away. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. It was awesome. Um, it was transformative in many ways. Um, and then to get the reactions from people in the crowd, um, when it was over, I just wanted to go find my wife and stepdaughter um, and my friends from high school and a whole bunch of other people who had came. And I got mobbed by the crowd, um, both not just for um, having fought as um, you know, a near 50 year old, but because of the alienation stuff. And I had people come talk to me about like, hey, this happened to me. I know what's going on. And it was really cathartic. And I think it gave us a good preview of if this story gets um, and gets the right push when it's done and the right uh, outlets pick it up, I think it's going to be really compelling and can do a ton for alienation as a whole. I think so too. It sounds very um, cathartic, dramatic. It's really going to attract a lot of attention. I, I did get to, in the name of alienation, punch somebody in the face and kick them in the head. So it was, it does come back. And even though they didn't do it, um, that outlet does definitely help dealing with the frustration. Um, you know, I pretty much get up every morning and I, I beat up a giant bag up in my bedroom. Um, um, and that's just part of the training. That's just obviously just like a warm up, but um, there is some level of, um, of recovery I think you get from doing things like mixed martial arts or just stepping out of your comfort zone because mm -hmm. this is basically stripped away. I mean, it was in being, being real, I've cut off and walled off as much as I could for my ex-wife as time's gone on and continued to be willing to be a co-parent through, um, hell, even after my, my son went to college. Um, which was when the alienation started. My ex-wife waited until um, he went, he was, he was 18. This is now coming up on over a year and a half ago, but he went to college and that was the last time I saw my daughter was when we were in North Dakota, 13 hours away. Um, she hugged me and they took off. And that was the last I saw of her um, other than a brief meeting with a therapist um, back in October of 2020 when the alienation was still fairly early. Um, but, uh, you know, I had managed to kind of go and sever a lot of the things that she would have had control over. But even when my son came home from college, I gave him the access to the car. He had full access to a car to go see his mom whenever he wanted to go out there for Christmas, you know, and I didn't hear from anybody. So even amidst the alienation, I stayed being willing to work with the situation. Um, but, uh, it just, it's not, it, it wasn't possible. And, you know, so the last thing she had access to, to get back at me was my daughter. That was it. And um, I had changed jobs. I took um, 
left my in-classroom teaching job to take an online job for the sole purpose of having additional time with my daughter um, mm -hmm. and realized, you know, my ex-wife was responsible for taking care of her driver's license and getting her a car, just like I had done for the older one. That was kind of how we split it up in the divorce. But it was becoming very clear as the summer went on um, before my son took off in 2020 that his sister was not going to be joining um, him at my house anymore and that wasn't going to come over. And he, he saw enough there to tell me about it. Um, he told me and um, uh, live in, um, uh, I would call him like a family member. Uh, uh, he's now in the U.S.C. His name's Ode Osborne, the Jamaican sensation. He lived with me for 11 years and helped me with the kids um, while he built his fight career. And it gave me somebody that could help out with additional stuff at home because I didn't have a lot of help. But, um, you know, he told both of us, hey, you know, I don't think Abby's going to continue to come to your house anymore after I leave and I'm worried about it and gave us some details as to why he felt that way. And lo and behold, it's exactly what happened. And um, so there was no shock or no surprise. We saw the behaviors leading up to it. And I guess if I could, there are a couple things if I could go back in time and do. One, I guess I had too much confidence in my relationship with my daughter and no contextual awareness of alienation so the things that my ex was doing, I saw them coming and we saw them happen, kind of refuted things and, and you know, kept things good between my daughter and I. But um, as the pandemic hit and she spent more time 24-7 uh, at home with mom, you could see it uh, change her demeanor when she started to come over. And so I wasn't shocked when it happened, but I guess I had faith that our relationship was too solid for her to suddenly just cut me out, but I was wrong. It, it was... Uh, I don't know that the relationship wasn't strong enough, but it tells me knowing in my heart, and I have the proof to show that my daughter trusted me and that we were close. This was not like just conjecture um, that I realized, um, you know, this is uh, this is something that it shows the intensity level that it must have taken to go and get that child to be completely won over. Um, and realizing that if I don't do this, I will lose this parent forever, but the understanding one will probably still be there. So I'm going to go ahead and, and succumb to this. And, um, you know, when I started looking up and researching the alienation, it was textbook, like absolutely textbook. And when you went into the symptoms and the factors, I could not believe how blatantly obvious it was and then I was able to go back and understand certain acts going back as early as 2008 2007 and a couple even before my daughter was born um, that I, I saw where my parenting got undermined clearly um, and so you know you start to realize like making sure that this is an option is kind of like almost intrinsic in nature for the people that um, are like this and they just become sycophants and everything is what can I get out of this person? How can I manipulate that one? What can I get out of them? And um, you know, the, the, you find out not long later that the divorce industry is about the same. It works almost exactly the same. And when you no longer have value, meaning when they look at your case and go, I can't make much more off of this, they don't want to be around it anymore. And I think that, leads into this divorce industry which needs to be absolutely gutted of the people that are there the entire structure of it um you know i, I through this process started to unravel that <laughs> that big ball of yarn and that's a rabbit hole that goes deep 
um, you find out that divorce attorneys lobby against laws that would automatically guarantee 50-50 placement, um, which was not an end-all be-all because we had 50-50 placement and my ex just trampled it and we have laws in place in Wisconsin. It's a felony to manipulate that. But my attorney would not make it an issue and he told me very much not to go with it. Um, you know, no one will really take that seriously. Um, it's best if you just kind of walk away. I'm sorry. Um, and I took that advice initially, but as it is with a narcissist, and I think probably your audience will know this, it's not enough. And I knew that wasn't going to be the end. She, uh, she had habeas corpus. She had the body of my daughter. Um, in August of 2020, that was when my daughter started to cut me off and not respond to messages and then told me for three weeks in a row she wasn't coming over and then stopped kind of responding. And then um, it was just radio silence at that point. But, um, you know, it was, uh, I started to research all this and went, you know, there's going to be more. And sure enough, my ex-wife came after me in court when I played the last card I had. Um, I knew she had um, solicited counseling for my daughter and that counseling was not for me, which is why my consent was never obtained. It was because they couldn't get along and they were having excessive issues between each other. They went and got um, a counselor and I found out about it after the fact. And it took me a while to get the name of the counselor, but I got it, met with her and was blown away by the entire experience. One, she's a coworker of my ex-wife. So my ex-wife is a pediatric surgical RN for Children's Hospital Network. And she did work at different clinics um, outside of the base hospital and was connected there. So she had used her own work connection um, to go get her into counseling and then did it without my consent. And she did it because um, they were clashing over my daughter's orientation, um, which my, I was aware of for over a year before my ex-wife found out about it. But um, that was what really kickstarted the intensity of the alienation. Because once that came out of the, the bag that I knew for a year and I didn't tell her, then that became weaponized and they got the counseling. And then within less than a year, I don't even exist anymore. And so when you start to kind of put all that together and realize this was, this was bad. And when I met with the counselor. She was absolutely clueless on alienation. I talked to her um, extensively for about 40 minutes before the appointment and told her what was going on. And I said, clinically, I can show you what has happened. I have evidence. I have people you can speak to. And she was very seemingly willing to have me come in. She arranged it. I went in. Um, I warned her that um, when she set up the appointment that it would probably get manipulated by my ex. And it actually was. Um, and thank God for voicemails that she left because now I can prove that my warning was not heeded. Um, it did get changed and it got um, altered, but it ultimately happened. And um, when I walked in the door, the first words were when we sat down, all right, well, we're gonna let it lay out ground rules here today. We will not be speaking of, of your daughter's mother. Why are we here then? This is an, a case of alienation and I know it to be, and I can prove it. And when I started asking questions about alienation, she was absolutely clueless. So after about three or four weeks, I pulled my consent for treatment because they never got it for me. So I held on and I waited and I gave it a lot of thought. I spoke to um, some uh, uh, service reps at Children's Hospital who encouraged me to write out the experience and file a complaint. So I did. 
And the therapist then dropped seeing my daughter, not the other way around. Like I was willing to even leave it in place, but not until there was going to be more of a meeting. But she dropped her and said that she would not take her back under any circumstances. Um, and so at that point, um, my ex-wife immediately took me to court and then came after me to get official full custody, which that was in um, uh, 20 would have been December of 2020. And this case, so that was when the legal side of it started. And it just wrapped up last week. And my daughter turns 18 in two weeks. So it played out exactly as I anticipated they would. This was not because there was any problem there. There was never once, um, I, I gotta be somewhat appreciative. There were no false allegations made in terms of anything I had done to my daughter or how I had treated her or how I had been as a parent. This was completely hijacked by a problem in the divorce industry. And that is the uh, incestual nature of how these people operate. And that was what I found to be the most problematic and what took this case from what I thought was gonna get a chance to really be looked at and be treated with some level of um, critical eyes. And instead it turned into a Lollapalooza of friends and connections and family members who are all involved in the family court system who completely railroaded me once I pointed out that this wasn't fair. So yeah, yes. it's been, been a problem and it sounds like the divorce industry is a pretty common theme as a problem uh, in when you're trying to fight against parental supremacy. Um, that's basically I think one of the things that these folks go and hide behind because it's a contest of money and it's a contest of connections. And if you don't have either of those two, you're going to lose. And when you find out guys like Brad Pitt are being alienated right now from his kids, it doesn't give you a lot of hope to ever expect the people in the legal field to do the right thing. But I think we can come up with plans of attacking these terrible human beings by exposing how terrible they really are and to do it by name and to make sure that they become famous. You let everybody know like, hey, this is what this terrible person likes to do in their free time or for their professional uh, behaviors. This is how they operate. And this is, if you are ever in this situation, here's what's going to happen to you um, if something's not changed or done. And uh, I, I became very passionate on this about preventing this from happening to other people. I got hit at a point in time where the light was at the end of the tunnel. My ex-wife could see the end. And she's like, all right, I'm running out of time. And just like we talked about those terrible actions that go back to even before we were married. And I look back and I'm like, nothing's changed other than the way in which they're doing it. But the level of, of um, devastation in the actions that have been taken um, have not altered one bit. They're just as bad as they were when they started and um, they're still happening. And if anybody thinks they're done with this, they're not done. I don't know when it's gonna come back, but it's not done. And so um, knowing that I might as well get ahead of it, expose them and you create such a, a toxic appearance for them that they don't wanna see themselves in the light anymore. And maybe some of these folks will just go away because mm -hmm. trying to alter them to get them to do the right thing, it's not happening. They have absolutely zero ethics and zero morals. And that was what I found out with my experience with the divorce industry. I agree. I totally agree. Um, same here. I mean, the court was just so incestuous 
there was so much collusion. As you know, these judges and attorneys go golfing, they go drinking together. Um, there's whores of the court that work with them. And, you know, the same situation with my ex, he married a whore of the court. So everything was completely laid out. And just like you said, it's, it's all planned out from the beginning to the end. And when you said um, about, you know, your daughter being the alienation starting, I mean, it's so insidious. You know, I noticed changes, but I didn't see it coming until it actually happened, like when the bomb dropped. Yes. I think what these, these people do, and like, it, it's, I think it's really tough for like good hearted people who haven't had this stuff happen to them to actually wrap their head around the level of depravity you have to have and like how shallow and empty you have to be to hide behind certain things or actions. In our case, it was the pandemic. My daughter and I had a very productive, happy, outgoing relationship. And I, that was one of the reasons that this got attacked. And, um, you know, she was, um, my daughter was um, pretty clearly, I guess, if there was, I wouldn't say a line, but we had traditions, we had things that went on with us that, that she didn't have with her mom. And her mom actually openly rejected her on her orientation and then still to this day has hid what my daughter is um, from the rest of the family because they would turn their back on her if they were to find out um, who she is and, and, and what her orientation is. So, which was crazy to me. And there is a reason that that stuff was shared with me. And those are the, the types of ties that they wanted to attack. But when the pandemic hit, that was when my daughter, I, you know, and I've worked with um, kids the exact same age um, since 1998. I've been a teacher, a high school teacher and a coach. And so I've got probably about 90,000 hours of experience directly working with kids the same age. And that's not including time spent with my own kids. Um, I understand normal human behavior and it didn't shock me when my daughter was very depressed during the pandemic. She lost out on a lot of things. She didn't leave her room. And when she would come over, she would be um, noticeably nasty to her brother um, and to other people who were here. We had live and help with O'Day. Um, he was like her brother and she was very rude to him and less so to me. I would usually pull her aside and talk to her but I kind of chalked it up to, listen, she's, she's going through a lot. It's the pandemic. We can't do much. But as things started to dissipate, we were like, hey, we can go walk around the block and it's nice out. We can get outside. She got really, really hesitant. And it became, when you look back at it now, it was blatantly obvious that the plan had been launched, that she wasn't going to go back. Um, and, you know, you start to piece it together. And like, I wasn't, I said, I wasn't shocked. I can go back to when my daughter was, you know, five years old and drew a picture of me after I sent her to her room. Um, and she came down after her mother came home and, you know, quote, unquote, counseled her. And there's a picture um, that she drew of um, herself dancing on my grave at age five. You know, and I remember at that same period of time, um, she was starting, we had a neighbor girl that lived next door and they would kind of gang up on her brother a little bit. And so I'd have to intervene. And I was home during the day in the summer with the kids. And I would kind of, you know, 
deal with my daughter and sometimes she would get time out. And those timeouts were actually, she was physically taught to not respect me in those moments. Now we got past that after the divorce, but before we were divorced, I was actually subject to this in the home, um, denigrated. So that campaign of denigration was going on so intensely. It happened in front of me. I watched it. Remember my daughter had trashed her room in a tantrum at about age five or six. And when um, her mom got home, um, actually, it should have been, Abby was actually about eight at this point, and it happened a few times, but the one that really stood out to me was towards the end, and I realized this, this relationship has to be over, and my daughter certainly did not cause the divorce, but these issues that um, ended up showing themselves in the alienation were going on and, and in part inspired the divorce because I could see that if I stayed in that home, I was going to be completely steamrolled between my um, uh, ex-wife's um, 400 pound, 54 year old virgin aunt who's never moved out of mom and dad's home, but it is a child therapist for this county that we just had it and had connections through work to the social workers and everybody involved. Um, she's been a terribly corrosive influence on my family. It is probably who actually had the blueprint laid out for the alienation. Um, this was very much like this was a kid bequeathed to a family member um, and given like the ability to run roughshod through it. But they would, and when my daughter was young and we were still married, if I sent her to a timeout or had consequences, my ex-wife would undo it and walk her through the house and say, you don't have to listen to that bad old daddy. You don't have to. And it was, it was blatant. Like, and I knew it was going on. And so that actually was one of the major factors that led me to go, I got to get out of here. Mm -hmm. um, between that and then clustering of uh, mental illness behaviors, when she quit taking her medication, which I didn't know and would come to find out later, but those things made me go, I have to flee this marriage. And I did. I got out. Um, I had arranged in secret where I was going to go. And I ended up leaving with the kids. And she didn't fight me on it initially. So um, she got them on the weekends. I took them Monday through Friday, handled all their business during the week. And then it stayed that way until um, the divorce was official. And then it went to a 50-50 um, hearing. But um, I think those things... Um, were indicative of the fact that, you know, of the mental illness, because everything else she fought like crazy. And then once the divorce became um, more formal, um, with papers filed and everything else, she, she completely changed and was um, no longer lucid. And now it was just uh, uh, argumentative and um, uh, would do things blatantly and just look at you right to your face and tell you that they didn't happen. And, um, the gaslighting. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, you know, it all fits together, um, you know, and I think I'm watching how all this played out. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't make me think that this divorce industry is, is good. I think they are exactly the same humans. And where I really got derailed and where I think this story is really going to try to focus on is when you have these, um, uh, you have nepotism involved within the system. And you start to realize that these people, as you mentioned, are friends, they golf, they do stuff together. And when um, my ex-wife filed, um, she was kind of, prob she was very pro problematic initially on the stuff she filed. She didn't comply with getting her suggestions for um, therapists and counselors and other stuff once they ordered all that. Um, and so we kind of got in on a rough start 
because she wasn't complying with that. But then um, they assigned a guardian ad litem. And I was actually excited about this because it was the one that my attorney suggested. And this is how I got to look at the uh, incestual relationships between divorce attorneys. So Daniel Exner, this, uh, um, I don't know, I didn't ask if I was allowed to swear because there's not many things I could say about you're, him. Oh, you're allowed. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Well, he's a fucking spineless jellyfish. Mm -hmm. um, had already suggested that I not take this to court, even though it was a blatant felony that was occurring. Um, he didn't want it to go to court. But when we got attacked, he remained my attorney. And um, he got the guardian ad litem that he wanted um, to be assigned to the case. So we were happy about that. That was, that was good. At least I thought it was good. Um, then I met with her and I met with her and I didn't know it was going to be after she had already met with um, not just um, my ex-wife, but she met with me after she had interviewed all of my ex-wife's people. And when the meeting started, she came after me immediately. This would have been in January of 2021. And I'll be very blunt. It, I was set up with at least some hope that this was going to get cleared up. And said, so I'm sitting on evidence and witnesses and people, including um, our own son, who was willing to go and say, hey, no, I watched this all go down. To this date, now our case is over. Catherine DiLorenzo, the Milwaukee-based divorce attorney who was recommended by mine, has yet to interview a single person of the seven that I listed. She just didn't. So this is, it actually works out if I'm trying to show how biased she was. She can't say she interviewed a single one. She tried to hide behind saying, oh, I made a couple messages and I called a couple times. No, you didn't really try. And she actually didn't. She left voicemails which people have and have sent to me. And what she sent was not to interview them about what they saw. It was to try to set up Zoom appointments between them and my daughter. It was absolutely nothing to do with what was turned in. She just skipped all of that. This woman actually mocked me for how much I wrote and said she didn't read it. And when I said it was an alienation case in the first couple minutes of the meeting, she just shook her head and said, uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's an alienation meeting. It doesn't feel like an alienation meeting. Oh, okay. <laughs> you haven't looked at anything. You haven't interviewed anybody. And to me, that was code word for I'm too fucking stupid mm -hmm. to actually do the work on this. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough. And I don't, in her eyes, I don't think she wasn't getting paid for a good paying side gig to go research some disorder or syndrome that was caused and had formality and she'd have to know. It was easier for her to stick her finger in her butt and go, uh, I'm just going to not do anything. But that actually, I don't believe was her motivation at all for not doing anything. I believe she knew from the jump that this was a friend. And when she came at me the way she did, I was shocked. And when my attorney didn't seem to think it was a big deal, when I reported it back to him, I started to do my own research and I vetted her and I found her on Facebook and this idiot had a wide open Facebook page and in just the parts that were open, cause I don't think the whole page is open cause there's definitely a cutoff date where there wasn't open stuff anymore. Um, I don't know how frequent of a user she is, but there were about anywhere from 20 or 30 pictures of her hanging out with my ex-wife's best friend as friends. 
So I did more research and found out that she is exceptionally close with two of my ex-wife's very, very close friends. And ironically, my ex-wife's suggestion for the guardian ad litem was one of those two friends. And so they kind of told on themselves from the beginning that they were angling to have a connection. And I was also friends with that woman from college and said, absolutely not. No, we're not doing this. You kept that friend in the divorce. I, she, she didn't align with me because I didn't say anything bad about you, but you did about me. So no, we're not doing that. And um, so they went with the one that my attorney suggested. And it was weird because that was the only thing they didn't fight. So this woman gets involved and she's terrible. And then I find out she's got friendship connections and it turns out lo and behold that my ex-wife's best friend is um, Elizabeth Depke. She's uh, was Elizabeth Bagley was something else. She's been divorced two or three times. Um, hard to keep track. And just like her, Miss DiLorenzo was going through her own divorce at the time she accepted ours and it was her second divorce and in some states you're not allowed to be a guardian ad litem if you have an open case of any kind mm -hmm. in particular a divorce case so she came after me and when i told my attorney he didn't do anything about it uh that just kind of made me look into her more realized that she had those connections and um he told me he's like well if that on that measure i could be considered friends with people and then then what happens I said, well, you shouldn't be friends with people that you have to go. That's not, not my problem. Mm -hmm. But um, I gave it some time. And when it became clear that nothing was going to happen, and we hit April. And by that point, uh, my daughter had missed 232 hours of school that year. And mm -hmm. over half of those came after the guardian ad litem was assigned. And she didn't investigate it once, not, not until the absolute last day of school last year. Did she ever confront anybody at school about the absences? And I told her about it in January. She did nothing. So these are things that are undeniable facts. She didn't ever address it. I have the emails where she did, and she did it on the last day of school. Very much a middle finger up at me, like, watch this, I'll do it on the last day. And then you can't say I didn't do it, which if she thinks I'm not familiar with how that mentality works, that's everything I divorced. That is doing the absolute bare minimum at the very end to try to make it look like you did something, but it's really just a middle finger up at you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so um, I went and um, I wrote her a letter in an email in April. I sent it to the office. In fact, I didn't even send it to her. I sent it to their front desk person and said, hey, you might want to know who you work for. This is what this person does. Mm -hmm. And outline those things. And because I did that, my attorney then used that as a reason to drop me. But I had actually planned and um, expected him to do that when I sent the email because I wanted to test, is he loyal to me or is he loyal to his friend that he's got a business arrangement with that they recommend each other for cases. And it came up that ex exactly as I anticipated, he dropped me and that's exactly what it was. And so you start to really learn these people are all close. They're all friends and they don't want to be adversarial, even if it costs you your relationship with your child, because to be adversarial is going to make it impossible for them to get future things, or it's going to make other settlements more difficult, or they're just not very good attorneys. And that's why they do this, because they get away with more in family court, where it's not really the, uh, the fam or the ideal place to be. 
but maybe they weren't so great at law school, so they just kind of fell here and figured it would be easier. And I think that happens way more than we really realize. Mm -hmm. Oh, I completely agree with you. And I mean, I even had an attorney that was afraid to argue in front of a certain judge. Really? Mm -hmm. So nothing like, <laughs> you know, and you figure you're paying what, $350 an hour for that person who's got absolutely no courage in their body, like not an ounce, like they're afraid to even go in front of him. Like, I don't know. Her. Yeah. Oh, her. oh he, wow. He couldn't go in front of her. He couldn't do it. I don't know why. <laughs> well, <laughs> we could probably fill in the blanks because it's made me wonder watching how my attorney, the way that he just cast me aside was so quick. He'd been my attorney since the day I filed. But the second that I, I went and said something unpleasant, and it wasn't threatening, it wasn't, it wasn't kind, but um, you know, this woman who they assigned, Catherine DiLorenzo, is twice divorced. Mm -hmm. She was going through the second one when she took this case, which to me should have gotten her removed immediately. And it, it didn't. She, um, you know, she has no children of her own. And you know what, in a, in a perfect world, that shouldn't matter. But it does matter. So it earns her the nickname, the Baroness, because how are you going to go and offer up opinions when you have no formal training, you have no major experience actually directly working with children, you don't have any, not an ounce, you have zero empathy, you have no problem railroading somebody and bragging about not reading their stuff. And the thing is, is she knows that's true. She knows she did it. She knows she said those things. You look at all that. And then you go, you don't even have kids. Why are you offering an opinion on somebody's life when you can't stay fucking married yourself mm -hmm. or have kids and have any context or any baseline to feel the way you do? So I felt like, you know, this is something that needed to be exposed. And if I've got to go and drag her out into the public and like I, I think I sent you the possible trading cards anything to get a database going on these people because the way we're fighting back as a status quo isn't necessarily working. Um, I think there is a general hope that people will just do the right thing. They're, they're not going to. No. They're just absolutely not going to. So they will do the right thing and either recuse themselves or when they realize this is going to make me look bad and it could cost me money later. So I don't think I want to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with this, you know, that's the way you hit them back. The same way you would deal with your ex is how you deal with them. Because, you know, like, it's pretty, pretty scary. Like, I think I, what, the quote I read, not all narcissists alienate, but all alienators tend to be narcissists. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, especially with bad divorce attorneys, they're either just uh, corrupt and just bad, or they're also narcissistic and they only care about what their bottom line is. So, um, you know, if they can live with the fact that their fingerprints actually tore a family apart, um, then they shouldn't be working in it. Like if this was customer service and we actually have to pay for it. So <laughs> I'm actually being this, uh, the guardian ad litem, I have yet to pay other than the initial $500. I owe her probably 1500 or 2000 allegedly but I couldn't get anybody in the court system to tell me what I'd be paying for. She mm -hmm. submitted times and stuff like that, but she didn't interview my people. A core basic thing, but this wench has absolutely no problem, um, you know, 
coming after me for money, you know, to go do a job that she didn't actually do. Um, and, you know, to say that she helped tear the family apart further, the fact that she didn't alienate um, or that she'd, uh, she didn't interview my son, my <laughs> son got real upset, like that he got completely skipped over. And um, he had a chance to kind of see how this all played out. And he got to see how everybody from his mom to her attorney to everybody else, how they didn't care at all. And now that relationship is completely trash. So even thinking that they're helping each other, like my ex-wife's attorney has absolutely no clue that with this documentary, the way that she handled things gives me a visible villain to go and, and, and play out and show how they operate. Like, you know, the way that this got closed out was, you know, I, I didn't, I lost rights to my daughter right before she turned 18. She turns in three, you know, three weeks after the date, but they came after me for child support for that time. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to pay it, even though I, I got laid off in September. And so, you know, I went and I put the time into the fight in the documentary um, and had kind of planned ahead that I might be laid off. Um, with the pandemic ending, my online teaching job lost most of its enrollment. So it didn't matter that I didn't have anything or that she made three to four times what I made before this. Mm -hmm. They're coming after me for that time that they stole. And, you know, that gave a very vivid picture of what these people are like to the other child who might be 20, but is joining the Air Force. His mother has no clue. She's not talked to him. Um, he very much, when um, she used him as a springboard, to show my daughter what would happen to you if you ever dared stand up to her. And, um, you know, when he, he never distanced himself from her um, when he was in high school, but he did distance himself from her home a little bit because um, she lived right next to the school he went to and was becoming very stifling when it came to his education. And he wanted to transfer to the school where I worked, which was in the inner city of Milwaukee. He was at a suburban high school. And he actually, this would have been the exact same time frame when the intensity kind of picked up on the alienation after my daughter's orientation came to light. My son did not want to alter the, the placement schedule, but he wanted to transfer where I worked. Mm -hmm. And I would have been, that would make me his head wrestling coach because um, that's what I did at the school where we were at. It was a better academic school, but his mom fought it. He won, he was 16, he was able to go to the school he wanted to. But that earned immediate scorn and punishment from him, for him, from his mother. Um, so even though he continued to go there 50% of the time, um, she gave away his parking spot in the garage to her wealthy brother and made him park outside all winter. She stopped going to his events. She stopped going to his games and to his matches and made it to only the bare minimum of anything and really mm -hmm. kind of used that as a way to springboard and show um, his younger sister, if you stand up to me at all, I'm going to withdraw love from you and you're not going to get that back. So, you know, it was, it was sad and tragic that that happened, but you know, for anybody who thinks they helped her, how do you help somebody by costing them a child? And you know, those relationships matter to me. And so I have fought and fought and fought to the point where when the fight didn't go well, I went and got in a cage and fought in front of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in terms of the insanity of dealing with these terrible people, I had, it, it, this didn't hit me until 
I was actually in the cage for my fight. I had spent so much time working on my calm that I had literally created in my own world in that cage where I came in and there was a huge crowd and it was loud and it was the first fight of the night. And so it was um, pretty intense. And, um, you know, there was um, a big deal being made about it by the promotion, which was awesome. But I got in that cage, I started jogging around. And all I remember is it was just like big white light all the way around. I didn't know where people were, but it was the first time in a year and a half that I had any amount of peace at all. And it took fighting in a cage in front of 2000 people on a TV broadcast at almost 50 years old to get a brief respite and to just get some peace. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it goes to show you how really truly crazy this experience is and how you understand when it's over, when you see somebody snap and you see somebody lose it, or you see somebody end their own life, you understand it. Like you understand what they're going through. You understand how that could happen because, um, you know, I'm very good at violence. I'm Mm -hmm. amazing at it but I haven't used it on anybody <laughs> that didn't, uh, you know, it was in, you know, in this case. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to get myself in trouble, but, you know, the whole notion of violence is so crazy because emotional violence to me is just as bad, if not worse. And mm-hmm. if you were to measure a violent scale over the physical side versus the emotional side, and you gave it credibility, um, which I think it should have, um, I've been dealing with the most violent people you could possibly imagine. I mean, what's worse than costing a person their child and taking a part in it and not giving any justice and not really making an effort? Because if all these people like, well, there's nothing else we could do. Well, then you fucking suck at your job. Mm -hmm. Then you're absolutely just terrible at your job and just come out and say it because there's so much stuff that wasn't tried. And I'm sure it's not so different from anybody else. It's been very much the same with everybody I've talked to. Um, and I know this definitely got me to the point where I was, I was for the first time in my, um, almost 50 years, I was suicidal. Like I got, like, you know, I toyed with the idea pretty significantly. And, um, if that sounds extreme, I would ask folks to go through what I've been through. Um, when that guardian ad litem completely shut me out in the first meeting, yelled at me, was nasty to me, was rotten to me it made me realize, I'm like, you know what, like it, it actually pushed me to the point where I almost, that was the closest I think I ever got, mm-hmm. uh, was that day. And it was so bad that when we had to do the second appointment, I blindsided her and actually sent the Zoom link to my wife and had her show up in the meeting first. One, because she hadn't been interviewed yet at all, and I wanted to do that, but two, I wanted another set of eyes that was gonna see what was going on and I wanted to see if her demeanor changed and so we deliberately played her my uh, wife got in um, first and the guardian item was visibly surprised I hopped in about a minute or two later and um, she made immediate mention of it you could tell it made her uncomfortable but man what a different demeanor in that meeting and that's when I knew she was she was bullshit that this was, she was changing the way she acted because of who was watching. She absolutely, just like the narcissist telling themselves all the time, like, you're not going to get a reaction from them until they realize, uh-oh, my reputation is about to take a hit. And people that I might be able to take advantage of later, they actually are going to know 
stuff about me that I need to make sure they don't. So that's the only way to get action from these people. She told on herself. Mm -hmm. She changed the way she acted with a different set of eyes there. And for what it's worth, my attorney, um, Dan Exner, the spineless jellyfish, never, never offered to be in that meeting um, until the second one was done. And I told him, I'm like, look, she totally acted different. Well, that was the last meeting that we had. We didn't have any other ones. She was able to wrap all this up with two meetings with me and two with my daughter, 40 minutes. And she's bang up job, right? Like how mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way. You don't make progress with kids or with a situation like this with that type of, of expedience. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. No, not at all. It seems like, you know, with your guardian ad litem and, you know, the caseworker I was dealing with, they seem to run one-sided interviews. And oh, absolutely. Right. I, you know, I think it's they need to control the narrative. It's the only real explanation is that they're trying, they're trying to fill in what their limited thinking capacity came up with as the reason for this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and literally the, uh, her basis, and she said out loud, cause I, I was just so, um, uh, they're upset with this, but like they're under the impression and it may or may not have happened, but that I was recording Zoom court hearings. <laughs> and like the here's the deal it was like i had looked into it it didn't say anywhere it was explicitly not allowed mm -hmm. and these people were lying so mm -hmm. she believed that i had recorded um uh zoom hearings and um reported it to the court and um <laughs> she um, when i went to court for the for the last hearing which was supposed to only be about child support she filed a motion to have me arrested um, for um, contempt of court for recording it, but she didn't show up, so I wasn't arrested. And it follows a pattern that was blown open by a reporter, a really savvy reporter in Milwaukee. And I think you had read the articles on my page where one of the judges involved in my case is now in hot water. He's not the major one in trouble, but this exact same system got called out and it's eerily similar to my case. It's just genders are flipped. And she was a, a, a documented domestic violence victim, but the hearings went the same way. She got banned from her kids. She hasn't seen them in two years. She um, was um, abused physically um, and worse. And um, the judge actually had her arrested at one point and railroaded her. And another court found her to have been railroaded. So now this has been supported by an appellate court. And that story leaked the day before my case. And so I'm wondering, it actually got out on law journals about two weeks earlier. Um, and it's funny because that's when they switched my judge to this other judge and they got the bankruptcy attorney off of my family court case who had been terrible and hadn't done a thing. Mike Maxwell, he is uh, also a spine, either spineless or clueless or both. But Mike Maxwell had been on it. Um, he tossed my motion to have the guardian ad litem removed for a conflict of interest. He <laughs> called it procedurally, um, the way I filed it, a problem, but the attorney and the guardian ad litem didn't have a problem with it and said it was actually filed the way it was supposed to. And then he tossed it anyway. So, you know, these are things that will come out in the documentary and I will expose them. And, you know, if that's what it takes to do this, um, I will embarrass them to the hilt. I don't care what it takes. 
I won't break the law to do it, but I will break them. One way or the other, I'm going to win. Or get them to a position where their law firms look at them and say, you're a liability, you got to go, because we don't want your type of publicity here. And that's where I think you can get these people, because they're mm -hmm. shitbags. They don't have any ethics or morals. So you figure, all right, well, let's make them turn on each other. It's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. um, they don't care about, each, about anybody other than themselves or their bottom line. So if you can hit them there and do so much damage that you start to dig into their business or you get them booted, that's where you're going to get change made because that's what goes and inspires these fucking weak, terrible, poor excuses for people that would ever take a position like that and then shortchange somebody on effort and uh, knowledge. You're obligated as a teacher. I have to take classes to make my knowledge go up. What happens to these people? Where do they have to do that? I'll bet you if you gave a parental alienation quiz to 100% of court officials, that there would be less than 10% that would pass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, that, that's absolutely scary. And it's probably driving the bus of about 75% of the high conflict custody cases are mm -hmm. probably alienation cases. But if that gets out, now there's a way to fight it. And that cuts into the bottom line. So I think we need to go and circumvent that system. And um, I think it tells you a little bit when it's easier to change laws and to get parental alienation viewed as abuse than it is to get the attorneys to actually behave. Mm -hmm. like, and I think that's scary when you have to go to politicians because they're the better option. That doesn't mean they're a good option. It just <laughs> means that as slimy as a lot of them are, they're less slimy than the divorce attorneys mm -hmm. and the, the, the narcissists that go and engage in this because it's as bad as it could be. And I can prove it. I just wasn't given a chance to. So we'll do it another way. Definitely. Definitely. You know, uh, how can parents reach you if they have a question? Well, I would like to invite, if you've been going through this, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Um, this is going to see the light of day as a documentary film, possibly a series. My goal for it is to actually have a transition into include one or two other cases with mine and do it like probably in a series of um, documentary um, uh, episodes and then transition into doing it for like two different cases per episode in transition. And I think this has become so commonplace um, that I think it's, uh, there's a lot of people out there who have yet to realize maybe that they were alienated or that when they lost out on the relationships with their kids that this was a formal plan so please do not hesitate to reach out to me because i am uh, stockpiling people's cases so that we can get the word out about it one way or the other um, i am on everything at coach tomes c-o-a-c-h-t-o-m-e-s so that's on instagram facebook um youtube probably pinterest i have a page out there somewhere but i don't check it all that often um uh twitter um and you can email me at coachtomes at hotmail, Yahoo, or Gmail. I have all of them. So I'm pretty easy to locate. Um, and I have a website at coachtomes.com as well. So if there's anything you need, please do not hesitate uh, to reach out to me. Because uh, I think that's actually one of the untold parts of all this. Is that there's so many folks out there that have just don't have the wherewithal to research or to start looking into this to realize what happened to them. And I've talked to a few recently that they said, you know, 
gosh, I didn't even know. I didn't know this was out there. And I, I know what they mean. Uh, my wife went through this and w- realized when we started to get into this, that she wasn't abandoned by her father. He, she was alienated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. She's got the relationship with him today, but not her mother. Um, and her mother was who she had aligned with all those years. And she, when she saw it, she couldn't unsee it. She saw, you know, like how toxic her mom had been, but it took me being alienated from my daughter for us to realize, holy cow, that was probably very much a plan by your mother and she fits the profile perfectly. So I think she's not alone. I think there's a lot of people out there that are just actually unaware that there is a way to get kids to just suddenly not want to see that parent. Mm-hmm. And um, to tell you how clueless judges are, the beginning of my case, the first time we were in front of a judge and I started to explain how it's not normal for a teenager to instantly no longer have anything to do with a parent, that that's abnormal. And his instant, Mike Maxwell's instant remark was, well, I don't know about that. I've got kids and sometimes my kids don't want to talk to me. What the fuck? <laughs> like, you're comparing the little tiff you go and have with your daughter when she doesn't mm-hmm. want you you, know, you want to tell you what boy she has a crush on or why she got a B instead of an A on her test and she goes through a room. It's not the same. No. Like he literally, that was his direct words were, well, I don't know. You know, I had teenagers at home. Jeez. <laughs> like the, it, it was the most laughable. Like I honestly think if some, and this dude's also this whale of a human and you just wonder like, is he this clueless? Like how big of a douchebag he just looked like? Mm-hmm. I mean, for real. Like you know, <laughs> it's uh, it is nuts. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know, I'm I'm really looking for ideas and people to collaborate with going forward to fight because one of the problems with this is that the status quo way of fighting is very much I'm fighting my case, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the way we should go about this. I think we need a database of the shitty people and Mm -hmm. we need them easily accessible to locate email addresses, phone numbers, so that if you're going in front of that judge or you're going to go in front of that social worker or guardian ad litem, let's go and get it out there. If they've got any history of alienating, then we bombard folks and not the person who's fighting it, but you get thousands of people to pick up and email these folks or pull stunts or pranks that annoy them because they're not going to respond to anything else. They're not going to mm-hmm. respond to you saying, oh, you're bad. They don't care. They know they're mm-hmm. bad. They do not care. But no. if you get, say, you know, you start to get under their skin. Um, I tested this after my case uh, wrapped up. I had planned on this. I wrote a two-page letter, heartfelt, as nice as could be, legitimately worded thank you to my ex-wife's attorney. And I sent it with a bouquet of flowers, um, a very nice little soon to be spring arrangement up here in Wisconsin and thanked her for doing what I couldn't do and basically getting, uh, alienating my son from his mom um, for a temporary, basically he could sort out his own life and what he wanted to do and not interfere with it because that's about the only productive or I shouldn't say productive but the only attempt she'd have to have an influence would be to shit on his plans or not you know kind of denigrate it the same way she would have done to me so I thanked her and I said you know 
you've given me the ending that this needed to be a real story. And um, that was it. There was, it, was, it was written, if you didn't know the context of it, 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 was, um, it would come across as the nicest letter ever. There's no aha moment where it's, it's just kind of perfect in the way it's worded. But she called the police after I did that. So I thought that, <laughs> that was pretty hilarious. And basically she told on herself, okay, that got <laughs> It was completely innocent. It was nice. It was, and she might know the difference that it was maybe a little, probably under the table, not so nice, but I wrote it completely nice. And she still managed to- Awesome. But it, <laughs> if we mess with these people, they'll break. They will break. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hate that this is the route that probably would work best. Um, <laughs> but I do think part mm -hmm. of our documentary is gonna be how can we go and almost, combine jackass with Sasha Baron Cohen type work and get these people and expose them for who they really are. And that's where I want to go with this. And I think um, I have the know-how and I think some of the right people involved, but we can always use more. So if you would like to go and get pressure on the absolute terrible people, let's get them. Like I'm in. So whoever else do this. Um, I'm, I mean, after you fight in a cage at age 50, what else is a fight? Like, right, right. So well, it, it can't be harder. Well, you know, um, I know there is judicialpedia.com where you can go in and register. You can list your case, the judges, the attorneys, everybody involved, the case number and the outcome. So I've got a bunch of my cases in there. And then there's the robing room. And you can just Google robing room and you can put in your attorney, uh, judge, whoever. So those are two separate um, websites that parents can go to. I mean, even if it's a criminal case or a family court case, but just list these people that have done you wrong. And that way, also, like you said, it's a database of, you know, oh, hey, I remember yeah, that judge was on this case, you know. It, it helps. It does. I like I was looking at um I just started searching through Twitter and started searching for people's names. And I found that the um the social worker that got assigned to my case, the first social worker recused herself because she worked with my ex-wife's sister and she disclosed that. The second one had just as close of a relationship through work with her, but he refused not only to recuse himself, but when I asked Dick Wimmer. Richard Dick Wimmer, I asked him, like, hey, like, can you tell me, like, so here's the problem. This person's connected to my ex-wife. So is this person. The person that you're replacing recused herself for having a connection. You have the same connection. How can you assure me you're going to be unbiased? And he said he refused to go get into that. He wasn't going to go and try to assure me that he, that I could either trust him or not. Well, I just asked you to tell me how you were going to handle all this and in light of the other things, I think it was a pretty valid question to ask. Mm -hmm. And he just blew it off anyway. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't care. And mm -hmm. so um, I looked him up and there's a case in 2018 and I don't know who it's with, but somebody had tweeted a bunch of details under an alias about their case. And so I tried to reach out to that person. They must've ended that account, but clearly there's a history with somebody like that. And, you know, that's another thing. Like if I had known to go and look at that first, that would have given me one more thing to go and say, how familiar are you with alienation? 
-hmm. because when I asked him, he wouldn't elaborate on that either, other than to say he knew what it was. He wouldn't elaborate at all. And I think that's where that kind of goes. And I think, you know, he works with my ex-sister-in-law, who I believe actually laid the blueprint out. And the reason I feel that way is we hit 14 of the 17 um, things that they use. I know there was Amy, I believe it was Amy Baker's points. It was one of the big, mm -hmm. she had the 17 factors and 14 of the 17, I have hard evidence of. Mm -hmm. The three that I don't are because my ex-wife did not get remarried. But one of them, I think you could almost count because I did get remarried and my stepdaughter calls me Ben, not dad. I'm not replacement dad. Mm -hmm. I've always been Ben. That's what I'll be. I'm sure she's like, oh, that's my stepdad or whatever. But like, to me, she doesn't call me dad. She calls me Ben. Mm -hmm. And like in reverse. So it almost helps my case in reverse on that one, because in my own life, I'm not that way. And as rotten as my ex's, um, uh, my, I'm sorry, my wife's ex is or was at the beginning, he and I don't have any issues with each other. I actually get, I see his mom a lot more than anybody else when I mm -hmm. see the family, but like we get along just fine. You know, we don't have this animosity towards anybody and whatever they do with their life is, you know, their call. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how, like, um, you know, uh, I was able to go get remarried, do all those things. And it, it, it just drove the revenge factor in that much stronger for my ex who, um, you know, she, uh, in realizing um, that she didn't have the right people in life, she'll just cast them off and go get other ones and mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. do those same types of things. So I don't know. It's a definitely ugly, ugly situations, mm -hmm. but um, I do think the mentality of being willing to not hold back in the fight, as long as you stay within the law and that's, you know, I don't want to see anybody get in actual trouble. Uh, but I do think we have to kind of push that envelope a bit to get this done. No one's going to do stuff the nice way. And if mm -hmm. you know anything about history, no good law ever got passed without really fighting cutthroat. Um, you know, they, if you've ever watched Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln had to go and do some crazy things to get the Emancipation Proclamation passed. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be the same thing. The end result warrants it. Um, this damage is so severe. Um, when you start to consider that it's more painful to go through this than the death of a child mm -hmm. and people don't they don't have enough context to know that and so the people around you even it becomes a struggle because I know for me I've got a very good but small support network mm -hmm. and people almost have to go in shifts to deal with you when you're going through this because you're going to wear them out a little bit mm -hmm. um, but a lot of that is because they don't know and like they you know they know it's bad but they don't realize like what you're exactly up against. And I think mm -hmm. most people believe our country to be fair and good. And it's not, um, it's, it, it, this is, it, you know, money's going to drive this influence mm -hmm. is going to drive this. If we kind of pull resources together, I think we can outdo them. Mm -hmm. And in particular, because the people on our side have resolve for good things. And for, I'm not trying to, you know, is how, how to put it. This isn't for my self benefit because <laughs> at the end of the day, for everybody who learns about this, there's going to be probably one person for every uh, person who's sympathetic that goes, yeah, but what did they really do? You know? And so when you bring stuff forward, you know, you're going to be under scrutiny, but I also know enough to go, you know what? I'm not sitting here saying I'm a perfect parent 
but I was a good, effective parent and my kids trusted me. And when that stopped, there was a reason for it and it wasn't me. And I am very confident in that. And if nothing else, I want the open record for my daughter as she becomes an adult and she gets away from her toxic mom. Because at some point, mm-hmm. I would hope she'd get away. Now, in that family, it's not a given. They have a 54-year-old that never moved out of the house. So, you know, I, I can't say that that's a guarantee to happen. But if she does leave her mom's clutches at all, I think this is going to have a chance to go back. But mm-hmm. with that family, I tell you, it is a, it's not a given. And they might very well keep her, find a way to get her to go to the local community college for a couple of years and hang on to that influence rather than let it uh, have a chance to go and recover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you follow patterns, it, it, it's a pretty high percentage of kids return to the alienated parent as adults, but it's not a given. And sometimes mm-hmm. that damage lasts for good. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're dealing with stuff that has such a explosive uh, downside. I think we absolutely need to be willing to fight with a level of veracity that matches what we're actually up against. And that's with people who have absolutely zero ethics and could look straight through you as they fuck your life up and Mm -hmm. not care an ounce. They'll sleep just fine that night. And to me, coming out of the world of education, that just blows my mind. Uh, Mm -hmm. That you can have a job that pays more (laughs) and is higher tolerance for doing nothing to help people um, when allegedly that's all you're supposed to be doing. And I think, um, you know, reporting these people, I found there's, I have a couple websites that got sent to me by um, people connected with the other big case that just blew up out of Waukesha, um, that you can report this both to the FBI and to um, Wisconsin law enforcement, and that they're encouraging people to do so um, and to file these names and to get them spoken to. And even if it fails, you get a call from law enforcement going, did you really not interview everybody? Did you really do all these things? At least if nothing else, they've got some reason to go be scared. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's enough to motivate them, but it is a start. And I think getting organized, um, I I showed you, I sent you the mock-up, but I want to do trading cards for these assholes Mm -hmm. and put them on these cards and give them a team name like the spineless jellyfish or the faux alligators. Um, you know, you, you come up with the right team classification and make a set for each year that these people do stuff that's terrible. Turn them into little mini celebrities within our field and get that stuff out there so people can mm-hmm. figure out who they are and, um, you know, start to go and dig in on them a little bit because... You know, mm-hmm. what they care about is how they look. Well, then if that's it, then making them look bad is not as hard as it might seem. How about the CPS caseworkers? You could call that the obese oddities. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I, that, that, uh, that might, when you start trying to come around with the different names, it's actually an awful lot of fun. Um, yes. I, I had the fudging judgings for one group. <laughs> I've got the, uh, the, um, the, what is it? The sick of phantoms. Um, got the, um, the amazing gaslighters. Um, you know, so, uh, there's a handful of other ones. Um, the spineless jellyfish is one or people that just don't do anything, um, to productive, um, 
you know, there's that. See if I can get the other ones. Um, and I'm see, we're always open to expansion teams, so we can oh, add awesome. some. The League of Slaps, the Select League of Alienating Parental Supremacists, is what I have as the league name. Nice. I'd love to do that and to get that out for everybody to see. Um, and I think, you know, beyond providing some humor and the ability to laugh a little bit about it, it also lets you go and actually classify these people, get them out there and um, provide a little mockery. I think it needs to be biting and it needs to be kind of mean. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, that's why I have a, in Miss Lorenzo's card, she's going to have a little star on the front to show she was divorced twice. Um, I think I got the social twerkers. The Coco Conspirators. <laughs> uh, there's a few of them there. Where are some of the other ones? Um, let's go Lackers. Oh, this is fun. This is yeah, fun. Oh, God, yes. It's such a blast. I, I actually had legitimate fun um, out of it in a very tough type of situation. Um, uh, you know, to be able to come up with a bit of humor was very, was very nice. Um, I'm glad that I was able to do that. I'm just uh, going to see if I can pull up the rest of them because I would love to take input on expansion teams because I don't know that I've got all of them covered. Mm -hmm. uh, let me find my handy dandy little uh, team summary here so I can get past my, uh, my punch riddled brain, which is struggling to remember all these off the top of my head. Excellent. I'll help you out. Uh, <laughs> hey, don't jump off, okay? Slam the Gals, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Ben Tomes in the future and other exciting guests. I totally was so thrilled to talk to you, Ben. Thank you so much. No problem. This has been awesome. It was very helpful and uh, hoping that uh, uh, we'll make a little bit more news on this stuff and then we'll uh, uh, be excited to hop on and get after it again. This has been, Definitely. Uh, I would love to have you back on, so you will be back. <laughs> I greatly appreciate that. Thank you.